Well, good to be with you again and uh, let me again start in prayer for us. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have said that your word is living and active, sharper than any sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. You have made your word able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So please enable me to speak from your word and to speak your word faithfully today. And please cause it to do what you have promised it will. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, I want to begin today's talk by introducing you to someone. He's a member of a church that we were involved in starting in church planting in Perth. Now, his name is Jonathan. Actually, that's not his name, but it will do for our purposes. Jonathan is three or four years old. And in every observable way, Jonathan is just an ordinary young boy. But whenever we go back to Perth, and he's now a lot older than that, but whenever we go back to Perth and I see him, I feel tears welling up in my eyes. You see, Jonathan is the child of two wonderful Christian friends. I watched them go out together. Heather and I observed them thinking about marriage, hoping that they would do it. We both prepared them for marriage. I conducted the service at their wedding and together they settled into a stable and rich married life together. When we started the new church, they said, can we come, Andrew? Can we join? Can we help? And they did. And eventually they began to think about children and Kathy became pregnant. She was 26 weeks pregnant and we were meeting together in church one Sunday morning. The service had finished. People were chatting together, you know, as they do after church and before heading home. And suddenly, Kathy's waters broke. She was rushed into hospital. Everything was okay, but the baby was at risk. Kathy would have to stay in hospital for the duration of the pregnancy. A week passed. Then infection set in. The baby would have to be born. At 27 weeks, there was a possibility that he might survive. And so it was that Michael was born. And he was a good-sized lad. And at first he did well. But his lungs were just simply not up to sustaining him. Michael's parents watched him for over a week. And as you can imagine, their love for him grew. But eventually he died. I conducted the funeral with them and their family in the hospital chapel. And it's etched into my brain. I watched them walk down the corridor for one last time with this tiny body wrapped in a shawl. And the parents were overwhelmed with the pain. Even now I can, I can picture the hospital and them walking it was a pain that endured for them for a long time. But eventually, they gathered enough courage together to try again. The pregnancy was watched by doctors. It was prayed over by friends. 26 weeks passed, then 30, then 35. And finally, Jonathan entered into the world. And to this day, when I see him, I remember his brother. 
And I remember the parents' pain. And I thank God for the gift of this boy. Well, now he's probably a young man, actually. Friends, even in our modern and scientifically sophisticated world, conception and birth cannot be guaranteed. The birth of a child is never something to be taken for granted. And how much more so must it have been in ancient Israel? How much more so when it occurred with this woman who had been barren? How much more so when a woman's worth, her dignity, her power, her place in society was significantly determined by her ability to produce children? And therefore, how fitting it is for her to burst into song in response to God's amazing action for her. How appropriate it is for her to sing of what the Lord has done for her. So friends, today, what I want to do with you is I want to help you enter into Hannah's joy and rejoice with her in our God. But before we do this, I want you to notice something. First, what we are dealing with in our passage today is a poem or a song. And I want you to notice the link between the song and Hannah's real life experience. When we read her song, it's clear that she is reflecting upon her own experience. For example, Hannah's barrenness meant that she suffered from Peninnah's boasting and persecution. In other words, she had a proud enemy. You can see that reflected in verses 1 to 5. That's a very important point. You see, whatever else we say about this song, we must not divorce it from its setting. It is a song of exaltation, of victory. God has met the needs of this woman. And this song celebrates that. This is a song tied to Hannah and her experience. However, Hannah's song, song, uh, Hannah doesn't just want us to reflect on her own experience. You see, she knows that her experience teaches something. She uses her own experience to reflect upon some genuine, general principles about God. You, You can see how she does this, even in the first few verses. The first few verses talk about Hannah and uh, she talks about my heart, my horn, my mouth and then she moves on. She starts talking about God. She talks about the Lord and then she moves on even yet again. And in verses three, in verse three, she talks about other people and she tells them to do certain things in response to what she has said. I wonder if you can see or hear what I'm saying. Hannah uses song to do what much good Israelite and Christian song does. She draws on her own personal experience and she then uses it to talk about some timeless theological truths. All good Christian music does this in my view. She goes on how to, to suggest how those truths have impact upon the thinking and experience of others. With that in mind, it's time to actually turn to the content of her song. Let's see what she has to say to us, what she can teach us in her song. Let's see what timeless truths about God she will open up for us today. Look at verses 1 to 2. The language, as I had indicated, is intensely personal. Hannah praises God excitedly. However, the focus is not on herself. It's not even on her child. But it's on God. She says, he's beyond comparison. There's no one holy like him. There is no one beside him. There is no rock like him. If you wanted to put a heading on verses 1 to 2, you could write, 
praise for our incomparable God. There is none like him. But let's look at verses 3 to 8. If you wanted to put a heading for these verses, uh, you could write, Praise the God of reversals. He turns things upside down. Hannah started in verse 3 by, talking, by turning to those listening in to her. And she says to them, Don't go talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Can you, can you hear what she's saying? If God is the source of her deliverance, if he's the ground of her rejoicing, then everyone who hears her should turn away from false sources for such things. Don't exalt yourself by talking proudly. Don't let your mouth be filled with arrogance. You see, there's a real God and he sees through such false glory. He's a God who knows. He's a God who weighs deeds. Now look at verses 4 to 5. Let me read them to you. And while I read, see if you can see God in these verses. The bows of warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry, they hunger no more. She who is barren has borne seven children. But she has had many sons pines away. God cannot be seen in those verses. He is not mentioned. He is noticeably absent. Hannah just talks about turning the world's normal power structures upside down. Then in verse 6, she tells us the source. She lets us know God is the source. Look at verse 6. It is the Lord who brings death and who makes alive. It is he who brings down to the grave, he who raises up. He sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He controls everything between life and death. God has no respect for human power structures. He loves turning them upside down. But let's move to verse 8. Hannah gives the theological undergirding of what she says. God can do all of this why? How? Well, he can do all of this because he's the creator. If he set the foundations of the earth, as we're told he does in Genesis 1, then he can turn human power structures on their head, can't he? What is overturning human power for a God who created all power and who is all powerful? Praise be to God the creator. Praise him for his power over human power structures. Praise him because he can overturn human pride. Exult in the God who can raise the poor from the dust. Glory in him who helps the helpless. Wonder at the creator who brings death and makes alive. Who brings down to the grave and raises up. Let's now turn to the last two verses of her song. If you wanted to put a heading over them, it would be, Praise God, the judge of all. Hannah's already told us in verse 3 that God knows and weighs deeds. In verse 10, she will tell us that he judges the ends of the earth. Here in verse 9, she peers into the future. 
She uses the future tense to describe him acting like a judge. He will divide the godly and the wicked. He will guard the feet of his saints. And he will silence the wicked in darkness. The faithful are like Hannah. They are those who trust in God to strengthen them. The wicked, well, they're the opposite. They are those who trust in their own might. For as Hannah says in the last line, it's, it's not by strength that one prevails. Now, as the books of Samuel go on, we'll see this time and time again, let me tell you. And uh, I do encourage you to explore the books of Samuel, to read them if you never have. And even if you have, now read them in the light of this theology of these first two uh, chapters. As the books of Samuel go on, we'll see this time and time again. We'll see people trust in God and God will exalt them. And we'll see people trust in weapons and strength and we will see God humble them. If you want no other example, think of young man, giant, Goliath. How does it work? Just like it says here. We'll see that in the very next chapter, in fact, if you read on. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's turn to the last two lines of Hannah's song. Hannah's experience has led her to eternal theological truths. It's led her to tell people how to act as a result. It's led her to predict how God will use these eternal truths in the future. Now, I think Hannah becomes a prophetess. She takes these eternal truths and applies them to kings that don't even exist yet. If God is as she says, then what she says doesn't just apply to a barren woman like her. No, it will apply to kings as well. And so God will give strength to his king. He will exalt the power of his anointed. The word for anointed here? Well, it's the Hebrew word for Messiah. Hannah is saying that true kingship can choose how it will operate. It can operate by lining itself up with the poor, the dependent, the helpless, or it can be proud and arrogant. If it's proud and arrogant, God will thunder against it, for such arrogance is wickedness. If it is poor, dependent and helpless, before God, then he will exalt, strengthen and lift it up. Kings who are like Hannah will reap from God the same help as Hannah received. Now friends, that's a marvellous bit of poetry, isn't it? From the experience of this woman. Let's stand back a bit and ask ourselves why it's here. Why do you stop? And let me tell you, in the books of Samuel, there are six poems or songs. If you understand them, you'll understand much of the books of Samuel. But why did the author start this book with this story and this song? Now, on one level, that's very easy to answer, isn't it? I mean, he simply just wants to introduce us to Samuel. Samuel's a key figure in overseeing the introduction of kingship. It tells us a story about how Samuel came into being, as it were. However, a detailed story and a theologically packed song is a rather grand way to say there was a child born. Now, my thoughts on this 
is that the author is laying the theological groundwork for the whole of the book. He's saying, this is not just the story of a child. <laughs> no, no, no. This shows us the theology you need to understand that will craft the rest of this book. So as we, as we begin the book, we find ourselves thinking that if God can give a child to a barren woman, is there anything he cannot do? No, he can do anything then, can't he? And if we take that on board, if we take on board what Hannah tells us about God, then we will be prepared for what is coming in the rest of Samuel. For example, let me just give you some examples and then you can discover the others by reading 1 and 2 Samuel yourself. It will come as no surprise when God chooses a lad to oversee the demise of the house of Eli. A mere lad. It'll come as no surprise when that same lad receives the prophetic word to bring to all of Israel. We won't be astonished, will we? If we, if we know these first two chapters, we won't be astonished when Israel is superstitious and arrogant regarding the Ark of the Covenant. No, we'll watch. We'll wait for God to judge such arrogance with defeat at the hand of of the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And if we know this, it won't be unexpected, will it, when God punishes Saul for his pride in thinking that he knows better than God. No, we will think, oh, of course. I remember chapters 1 and 2. And it'll come as no shock, will it, when a young shepherd boy is chosen by God from an inconspicuous family and it won't be surprising when that lad is anointed king of all Israel and if we've heard Hannah's song then we'll nod in acknowledgement when the Lord sends the same lad out with nothing but a sling and stones to conquer a giant Philistine boasting Goliath we will think well that's entirely consistent I've seen this theology before And we'll think it's entirely consistent when he enables a weak and under-resourced Israelite army to defeat the militarily superior Philistine army. And when we watch a proud David walking on the roof of his palace, looking at naked women and then killing their husbands in order to cover up his lust, we'll know what's coming, won't we? We'll know what's coming. We'll wait for God to act, knowing that God will bring the proud down, that he knows and weighs deeds. Can you hear what I'm saying? Getting this story and this poem right is fundamental. Hearing Hannah's song is critical. If you hear it right, you'll be ready for everything that's coming in the rest of these books. And in God's incomparable worth will just be cemented in your mind. Friends, let me say this. If Hannah had things right here, then we shouldn't stop with the books of Samuel, should we? We should think, oh, hang on a moment. Maybe we'll see this elsewhere. Maybe this will be true generally. And so we won't be surprised, will we? When a virgin 
gives birth to the Son of God. Or when God sends a local Israelite man from Nazareth against the greatest and proudest enemy of the people of God, the devil. We won't be surprised. Nor will we be surprised when he overcomes the devil through the weak and ignominious death of his son on a cross outside Jerusalem. Through a man hanging on a cross, the devil will be defeated. We won't be shocked when we join with John in Revelation 5. When we are told to look around God's throne room for the Lion of Judah, remember? We won't be overawed to find a symbol of humiliation and weakness instead. It'll be entirely appropriate when you look around for a lion to find a lamb with his throat cut but who's standing. Standing. We regard it as entirely according to character when it's not the wise, the influential, the noble from whom God chooses his people to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 27. And we won't think it strange that he uses ordinary people like us to go into all the world as missionaries to evangelise the world. Not, Not at all strange. Ordinary Aussies, as it were, to tell people a gospel that will bring them into eternity. We won't think it unusual if God uses our work on the text of an ancient book to change and transform the lives of the people in our congregations. Those things won't surprise us. Why? Because Hannah has led us to expect that it's not by strength that one prevails. In Jesus and his ministry, we will see Hannah's profound theological insights wonderfully fulfilled. God will have given strength to his king and exalted the horn of his Messiah. It's a remarkable part of scripture, this, isn't it? We started with a helpless, depressed, persecuted, barren woman. And we end up in heaven with a lamb that was slain, standing and being worshipped by heaven and earth. It's no wonder that Luke 1, 46 to 55 has Mary remembering the song of Hannah and echoing it in her own song about the upcoming birth of Jesus. For Hannah captures the heart of the hopes of God's people in all of time. And those hopes will eventually be fulfilled in the plans and purposes of God in Jesus Christ at the end of time. I cannot close this talk, though, without one further observation. You see, this song is not just about the books of Samuel. Nor does it just have implications for the New Testament. This song's designed for us to join in. It's a song for us to hear and take notice of. And in the history of Christian missions, it has diverse echoes. Let me tell you one of them in Pakistan. I love this story. Let me tell you about a man called Dit. He belongs to a very low-class division of Hindu outcasts. It's a caste of sweepers and scavengers. They deal in bones and leather and horn and animal hair. Dit is 30 years old. He's crippled in one leg. Dit has been taught about Jesus by a converted friend. He seeks baptism. The missionaries are a bit cautious. However, they cannot find a reasonable reason to object to his baptism. And so in June 1873, the missionary eventually agrees to baptise this small cripple. And Dit is overjoyed. (laughs) He is the first among his clan to embrace Christian faith and the family gathers. They're angry and Dit explains. Their rejection is worse than he, their reaction is worse than he expects, but he resolves to continue on in the face despite opposition and rejection. And one by one, Dit explains his faith to others. Gradually, they, they themselves convert to Christ. More and more members of his family join him. The news of Christ spreads from household to household, from family clan to family clan, from village to village. 
11 years later, in 1884, it is reported that in a single year, the communicant membership of the Synod of Punjab had doubled to more than 1,100. The next year reported another 500 had been added. Much of that can be traced back to the efforts of this little cripple from a despised outcast people group. In fact, a significant number of Pakistan Christians today trace their heritage back to that cripple. Friends, that's the God of Hannah. He's the incomparable God of reversals and surprises. So I wonder if I could close by asking you to pick up your Bibles and join with each other as we read together Hannah's song. Read it together in praise of our incomparable God. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Don't keep talking so proudly. Don't let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by his deeds are waved. By him deeds are waved. The bows of warriors are broken. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. Those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has born seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave, he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles, he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap and he seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world and he will guard the feet of his faithful servants but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. You see, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for our Lord Jesus, your king. Thank you that out of the cross you have brought salvation. Out of ignominy as it was, you have brought honour. Thank you that he sits at your right hand, this son of David. We pray your son and we pray this in his name. Amen.